You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. On this special bonus episode of The Luxury Item, my guest, backed by popular demand, is Mickey Kahn. Mickey is the founder and editor-in-chief of Luxury Daily, the world's leading luxury business publication, where he is also the editor-in-chief. The last time Mickey was on the show, it was in the middle of May. While it was only a few months ago, the world was quite different. We had just been clobbered by the pandemic wrecking ball, consumers went into lockdown, and the economy was in free fall. Retail spending collapsed like a house of cards, and travel spending was down by more than 100% if you include refunds. Department stores and clothing stores experienced an extinction-level event after having experienced years of decline. From the earliest stages of the pandemic, the luxury industry has been highly attuned to the spread of the coronavirus and its massive implications for the sector. With key luxury markets around the world affected early in the year, brands were doing everything they can to protect the well-being of their employees and customers through store closures and other measures. No question the fashion and luxury market will rebound after this severe COVID-19-induced contraction, but getting back to growth won't mean returning to the previous world as disruptive forces reshape the industry. Mickey Kahn is here to share his thoughts on how luxury brands can successfully respond to industry changes and recalibrate their business. To give Mickey a more proper introduction, Mickey is chairman CEO of Napian LLC and an entrepreneur who has successfully launched and sold several brands across his career. Publications he founded included industry leaders like American Marketer, Mobile Marketer, Mobile Commerce Daily, and of course, Luxury Daily. Mickey is a brand builder, publisher, event organizer, public speaker, and marketing and retail futurist all wrapped up in a really smart, insightful, and all-around nice guy. Welcome back to The Luxury Item, Mickey. It's great to have you on again. Thank you very much, Scott. Happy to be back. What have you been up to? It's uh, I think last time you buy uh, was in May. Um, a lot's going on. So, you know, how are things going? Well, uh, I've developed a severe case of cabin fever. <laughs> uh, there's no vaccine for that yet. No. So... Uh, Did you wander out at all from... Have you wandered outside of your area in uh, Manhattan since we last spoke just to uh, see what's going on out there? For the first three months, I did what typical Manhattanites do. Do not go beyond your three block radius. And um, I kept, uh, I was very strict about the quarantine. And uh, then I gathered some courage and I started going further south. Um, and uh, I, um, I made it as far as 60th Street and Fifth Avenue. And then uh, my young son dragged me downtown, and uh, that's about it. I don't think I've traveled out of New York since uh, uh, February of this year. So this is the longest time I've stayed in one city in my entire life. Wow. So I have to say about a month ago, uh, my tale here is about a month ago, I, I was walking around Soho. It's the first time I've been outside of my area in you know many months, and I went down there, I was walking around Soho, you know, it was the middle of the day during the work week or the virtual work week, whatever you want to call it. And as I was making my way through the cobblestone streets, it, it was like pin drop silent. You know, boutiques of some of the leading luxury retailers either closed or boarded up 
you know, they had these powerful murals and street art and graffiti adorning the building facades all along the walls there. You know, because of the pandemic pauses the present, it forces us to kind of live in the future. And the question I asked myself is the question I think that so many consumers and luxury marketers have been pondering. It's like, who will emerge intact from the pandemic purgatory and who will not? So that's kind of the first question I want to kick off with you, Mickey, is who will emerge intact from the pandemic purgatory and who will not? It's a great question, uh, Scott. And I can tell you, those who have deep pockets uh, will be able to survive. But those who have deeper brands will uh, basically outlast their competition. So what we're saying is, those with a combination of strong brands and well-managed finances have been able to pivot, keep their stores open, offer omni-channel retail services, and they've been better positioned out of the hard lockdown. But it's the smaller luxury brands that basically are in danger of running out of cash and uh, they've been crushed by their leases across the world. So. I fear that it's the same old story. Uh, the older, stronger, more heritage brands will have an up and will have an upper edge over uh, brands that do not have deeper pockets or corporate parents that uh, are flush. So for the moment, I think you're looking at brands belonging to, you know, the usual five or six large luxury conglomerates from LVMH to Kering, Richemont, Hermes, Chanel, Swatch Group, all the Swatch Groups went badly hit. But I'd say these are the six companies whose brands have a better chance of surviving and thriving after this lockdown and pandemic is basically put to rest. You know, you know, about a month ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article on how just what you're saying is how big brands such as Louis Vuitton and Hermes have proved more resilient than the smaller independent Italian labels during the coronavirus. And a lot of these smaller brands had their own challenges even before the pandemic. They had trouble, you know, attracting younger consumers or they were slow to sell online. So it seems like these smaller independent brands could be left behind when the dust settles as well. I mean, ones that have been established and around for a long time, they just, you know, they, they had their challenges beforehand and this is just like everything else accelerated it. Yes, uh, it's not to say that they'll all, you know, wither away, but I'm fairly certain that if they manage to trim their costs, uh, they'll survive. Um, the key is uh, the second wave. If we see a return to hard lockdowns, over the fall and winter, then obviously, uh, you know, uh, you don't have any guarantee, even if the bigger brands will be able to come out full uh, and intact. So right now, everybody's trying to conserve cash, uh, cut costs, uh, cut corners, but stay connected to their end customer. The most important thing is how are you an essential service to your audience? And that's what these smaller brands have to communicate, and as do the larger brands. Uh, if you're very affluent, uh, a Louis Vuitton is your gap. But if you're aspirational, a Louis Vuitton is what you save money for. 
So, you know, luxury brands are looking at two different markets and they've got to make sure they keep their high-end market happy, but also make sure the pipeline continues with aspirationals because that's where the trouble is. They're all worried about their jobs. They're worried about a second lockdown. They can't go out and uh, entertain and they can't, uh, you know, they don't have the usual freedom of movement. So I think that is going to be another issue, but smaller brands do have a chance as long as they manage to keep their costs down. It seems that marketers will have to have some kind of clear customer strategy moving forward. You know, luxury brands will have to have a sharper definition of their target customers as some of these new personas will likely emerge from this new world. You know, you'll have new mindsets, new social demographics, new expectations and new attitudes. So what are your thoughts? What, you know, what new personas do you think are going to surface from this? You've got to follow the money. See where the spending's moving. So someone once told me a few weeks ago that uh, the money hasn't uh, left this world. It's just moved. So you really have to follow the trail. Um, I see a lot of the money moving to the home market. Um, those who can are quarantining or staying in their second homes. Now we're talking about the you know, high-end market. Mm-hmm. Um, and even those who are fairly well off, if they're staying in their primary homes, they're spending more time at home. So they're improving uh, their technology. They're making sure the chairs and furniture are more comfortable. Um, they're enrolling in digital programs. And basically what they'd spend on travel and uh, dining outdoors or in restaurants has either been saved or it's moving to the home environment. So that's one opportunity for luxury brands to target. How do we make sure that we are targeting a customer uh, who is now housebound or uh, bound to their local community and give them a sense of romance and excitement I, you know, I remember reading about some of these hotels uh, mm-hmm. in Europe. In fact, in France, uh, in Paris, there's this hotel that has a 120-year-old restaurant and they've got restrictions on indoor dining. So what they've done is they've launched a new takeout service and it's immensely popular with their old customers. They reached out to them and said, you can't dine indoors, but we'd love to uh, take the restaurant experience to your home. And so guess what? Uh, They prepare the same dishes with the same elaborate finesse and deliver it to their customers. So I'm surprised uh, hotels, uh, you know, haven't done this here in the United States or in other parts of the world. I think that's a way to look at it. Yeah. So you, you do see a lot of the travel budgets. They're just lying there. And so if I were a smart luxury brand, I'd basically look at that budget and say, all right, they've not had a regular summer holiday. How do we get hold of that budget there? Um, Come fall, um, which is just a few weeks, you're going to see a hybrid school uh, schedule too, right? Right. That parents will have to stay at home. I mean, not everybody has gone back to the office, so you're going to have a combination of homeschooling and, and, and physical schooling. So you've got these two environments where parents need to feel 
oh my God, they're being overwhelmed because they got to take care of the young kids or their kids and they've got to look at, uh, you know, go to work. And so how do you make sure that you tackle that market opportunity there, wellness or something to make them feel they deserve it? So there's several pain points that luxury brands and marketers should address and treat it as basically, all right, this is the new condition for the next few months till a vaccine gives us some assurance that we can go back to a sense of normal normality. But for the moment, I'd say look at where customers are. They're at home, they're traveling domestically, um, they're spending money indoors, and how do you fit into that uh, environment? I think the, uh, Macy's had a uh, earnings call, I think it was like a week or two ago, and the executives were comment commenting on this recent shift away from spending on experiences towards purchasing goods and specifically luxury goods while they're at home. Uh, I think the CEO thinks the fallout of these bankruptcies could actually you know, lead to opportunities for Macy's in the luxury area because um, attitudes are different now. Yes, um, that's, that's a great point he raised, but keep in mind that we are in a holding pattern. So I wouldn't say that this is a permanent uh, schedule. And while consumers are, you know, open to, um, you know, staying at home, at some point, this cabin fever is going to reach a pitch, right? Mm -hmm. So stores have to be very prepared for some changes. And I mean, department stores have to be extra cautious, obviously, because their direct competitors, actually, their vendors. I mean, you know, Chanel has their own stores, and so does Louis Vuitton, as does Hermes. Right. And they're doing the level best to make sure that they get their customers in directly rather than through the wholesale channel. So the department store model is a little different. But um, I just look at the situation, and I see opportunity, but I also see threat. And um, I think you have to know your market very well. Uh, it's hard to generalize. Um, if you're an Hermes, uh, I see a change in their marketing, their digital marketing. Obviously, they're not pitching their ties as much. They're not pitching other products, but what are we seeing? Uh, a rapid uptake in bags. And I see that with a lot of uh, fashion companies where they're emphasizing leather goods. Now, if you're not traveling, you're not going out, how do you sell more bags to people who are housebound or who are not going too fast? So the, if you were a smart marketer, you're not selling that bag for a special occasion or for travel. You're saying, all right, the minute you step out your door, here's an opportunity for you to have another bag and to feel good about yourself and treat yourself to that. So yeah, that's, that's the opportunity there. Thinking about brand strategy around that, you know, the product's always going to continue to be the central touch point in the consumer value equation for fashion and luxury brands. However, the value proposition of luxury brands will have to expand to include these things, you know, emotional experiences that reduce anxiety and focus on wellness and be entertaining and that have some sort of therapeutic value. Do you agree? Yes, but you know, I don't agree. I didn't agree with the premise of the Macy CEO that people are moving to products and not experience. Ex the experience is the product. And they go hand in hand. 
So if you're trying to say that your pigeonholing experience is travel and something that's not tangible and product is something that you hold, that's a wrong way of looking at luxury or looking at any category for that matter. It is how you deliver that product that makes the experience. And experience will always go hand in hand with product because when you're buying a luxury product, uh, the experience is a given. Um, and, you know, if you go to, for example, the Cartier flagship store here in New York, you've got to go there by appointment. You're queuing outside. They've got all these markers on the side street. And then when you go in, you're treated with the same grace and respect that you would when uh, pre-COVID. And whether you buy a product or not, uh, they treat you with the same deference. Now, that to me is the continuation of experience. Um, but to say that people are buying product more, well, the, the fairly wealthy always believed in tangible goods. They always believed in owning, if that's what he meant, uh, instead of renting. They always believed in owning the yacht, owning the homes, right. owning the jewelry, owning the cars, because you can always turn around and sell them, right? The right. younger generation does not believe in owning stuff. That is at least pre-COVID. Uh, who's to say that that attitude won't change once they go through life changes and they get married, they have children, they need two cars, uh, you know, the aspirations go up. Uh, but I do not see this as the debt of experiences. Absolutely not. In fact, this is where experience has to step up because I'll give you an example of uh, urban centers, right? Many mm -hmm. buildings in New York and London and Paris do not allow delivery people to come upstairs anymore, right? right? So all the packages are dropped off at front desk. Now that's where the luxury experience ends. So what you're looking at is the package as the experience. You're looking at the fact that you're getting a text ahead of time saying that your package will arrive in exactly 15 minutes and uh, uh, we've beaten our time estimate and there you're delighting your customers. So how do you redefine experience given these constraints? And that's what we have to focus on. Not, you know, the old experience pre-March or pre-August if you were China, where, you know, you went off to one of these remote islands and the chef uh, showed you where the turtles lay their eggs and then picked one of them up and that was your turtle soup, right? So that stuff will come back at some point but you've got to redefine what experience means in this given environment. And I think wellness plays into that too. How do you make your customer feel reassured? How do you make them feel that, you know, that package was sanitized and all they have to do is just rip off the exterior and everything inside is pristine and clean, right? So uh, I do not believe in divorcing experience from product. They go hand in hand. Experience is in over product. And there's something therapeutic about getting a, you know, purchasing a luxury product anyway. Yes, it's a treat and it's a necessity depending on who you talk to. But as I said, for some, it's a way of life. And they're not going to scale down unless the stock market crashes or their network drops. For others, uh, as long as they hold their job, uh, they're basically saving money. And at some point, uh, knowing the consumerist society we live in, they're gonna spend that money. There's only so much food you can eat, uh, but people will want to wear uh, clothes. They will want to wear new jewelry. They will want a new watch. I mean, that's the way we are wired. And unless we turn totally uh, 
months, mm -hmm. I see uh, the luxury business continuing. The only thing is they'll have to uh, uh, change their marketing. They'll have to change their positioning and messaging uh, to deal with the times and to deal with uh, where the customers are located. And I think also their business models are going to have to change, you know, coming out of the crisis, fashion and luxury brands are going to have to reinvent and reevaluate their end to end business models, including building, you know, in-house rental services, which we're starting to see and getting into the resale business, you know, more limited edition collaborations, things like that. So some traditional luxury brands are already playing in these spaces. Um, so do you see that expanding in 2021? Yes, absolutely. And I think luxury marketers have been pretty smart about that. They've been pretty smart about collaborations and, you know, you've got to give them credit. Uh, they've been custodians of their brands. For the older brands, they've been in business for more than a century. And for the younger brands, uh, the family owned a lot of them and they've been very zealous guardians of their brand. So they know uh, that they've got to think long-term. And so when they strike alliances, or they retool their practices, they're keeping the future in mind. Uh, they know that uh, there is um, less demand right now simply because people are still scared. After all, we are still dealing with a life and death issue. COVID is, uh, you know, it's a real serious issue, but life goes on. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you think come 2021, spring of 2021. Yes, you can't have the same 16 collections a year, but you'll definitely have 12. I already see um, parts of Europe opening up to physical fashion shows and uh, they're keeping their distance. The United States is a little different. We are a little more cautious here simply because, uh, I mean, we are not that disciplined in maintaining distance. And unfortunately, given the federal structure, each state sets its own policy so you can't just uh, have a uniform approach. But I do feel that marketers are planning for not just this holiday season, they're looking at summer 2021 and figuring out will the virus be history next summer and how do you position yourself? But again, uh, unless we have a vaccine, every plan uh, will basically uh, be made on the hoof. I mean, really, I mean, you really don't, you can't set any plan in stone. So it's a wait and see, but they still have long-term plans. Yeah. So what do you think the store engagement playbook is going to look like? You know, we're starting to see more remote clienting and virtual shopping. And I think Gucci, I think recently launched a virtual uh, shopping service that allows customers communicate staff via video calls. And we're seeing more and more of that. So do you think that's an important part of uh, the store playbook moving forward? Absolutely. The stores have plenty of tools. And I think um, you've got to look at the store as not just a venue to welcome customers, but also a venue to ship our product. And if you are omni-channel, you can use the store for curbside pickup, buy online pickup in store, um, and fulfillment, one-on-one -on -one appointments. But the key is getting a combination of tourists and your locals. Um, if there's no travel, you've lost the tourist traffic. Exactly. So 50% of luxury is bought during travel. So you can forget that market for the next three to four months. And we're talking about long-term travel as well as short-term travel, all right? Uh, now it comes to the domestic 
consumption. I'll give you an example of New York. Um, Madison Avenue uh, depends heavily on uh, the people who live around Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue, on Madison Avenue, on the Upper East Side. And Fifth Avenue depends heavily on tourists as well as locals. But if you don't have both in the city, New York is hit. And that's what's happened. A lot of affluent New Yorkers are now either in the Hamptons or they're in Palm Beach or in their second homes in Connecticut uh, and New Jersey. So what we're saying is the local stores don't have that much foot traffic. And I guess that's the same story with London, same with Paris. So the key for the store to shine again is basically tourism. Governments have to allow tourists to travel and tourists will only travel if, um, if they comply with all the health regulations and guidelines until we have a vaccine. I don't see that happening, so. Yeah, it just seems like a missed opportunity, you know, the, when everybody fled the city um, to their second homes in the Hamptons or Connecticut or wherever it was, boutiques and the stores that did have some sort of strategy in place where the sales associate played a huge role in selling that when they were, you know, when they end up fleeing the city, they still had that relationship with the sales associate that they knew when they were in the city. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, who would have predicted? I mean, I can't blame them. I really can't because I mean, even mainstream uh, retailers and brands didn't get it right. Um, and what I'd say is luxury brands have learned from this experience and what they're doing is basically retraining. I mean, Neiman Marcus, Saks, Nordstrom, they've done a beautiful job. Uh, they retrained their sales associates to uh, go back to their black books and get in touch with their best customers and offer them the options that you mentioned, video, in person, on phone. And I think you're going to see more of that. Um, but don't forget, these are all huge organizations with legacy structures, different reporting, uh, legal issues. What happens if you, um, if you send a text without getting the opt-in permission of your customer? Now that's against the law. The customer has to opt-in first to get a text from you to pitch them on their services. So, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of regulations before you can actually go ahead and uh, follow the customer. Um, Saks Fifth Avenue has now started same-day delivery to the Hamptons, which is fantastic. Right, I read about that. Uh, but they're playing catch-up with someone like Amazon, whose entire business model is predicated on delivering product to homes. They've got these huge warehouses, and they were given a free ride by Wall Street for a good 20 years. And Wall Street ignored all the losses. And Wall Street refused to ignore the losses of uh, Macy's or JCPenney or uh, Neiman Marcus. And these guys basically went belly up. Um, and uh, so I'm seeing a lot of luxury brands making changes in the way their sales associates deal with their customers. Uh, and we call them clienteling, clienteling, depending on how you pronounce it. And I see more of this. The one area where luxury brands are really weak and they've been hammered on social media for this, is they just don't know how to return calls uh, very quickly. So mm -hmm. their response time is extremely poor and they've got to follow 
and learn from Land's End and LL Bean. So if I were uh, advising luxury marketers, I'd say follow the best in breed in non-luxury to see what are they good at. So look at companies that are very good at remote selling, all the catalogers. Look at Amazon. What makes Amazon really strong? You, you can barely find the customer service number on Amazon's website. You really have to dig deep. Um, you send an email to Amazon, they sometimes tell you just keep the product. Don't even bother with that. Luxury can't afford that. You cannot do that. If someone's bought a $2,000 watch, you can't just tell them keep it, right? Uh, to get that watch back requires different security protocols. It, uh, you're talking about insurance, you're talking about packaging, you're talking about when it comes back to you, how do you process that return? How, do you, how does it go? Uh, how do you clean the strap? Do you garbage the strap? What do you do? So these are very thorny issues that luxury brands have to deal with because they're not dealing with essential products and groceries. They're dealing with very pricey items. And in some cases, they're dealing with product that cannot be returned because once you buy it, uh, basically it's customized. So that's it. So they're learning. It'll take time. No one saw this coming. Um, and I know that all the brands we've talked to are busy making sure that they're prepared uh, in case a second round strikes within the next two months. Yeah, let's talk about Amazon a little bit. So, you know, Amazon is forging ahead with its plans for a luxury brand platform. You know, the platform is launching, I think, this month or any, any day now with a dozen luxury brands that will not only have full control over their online stores, but will also be able to tap into Amazon's, you know, customer service operations and utilize its rapid delivery network. So do you see Amazon finally getting into this space after threatening for so long, disrupting the luxury industry, like they've done everything else? Amazon can only succeed in luxury if they get the cooperation of LVMH, Kering, Richemont, Chanel, Hermes and Swatch Group. If these six companies don't cooperate with Amazon, then Amazon is playing with B players. Uh, they're not going to get the A tier. And I'm sure a lot of the smaller fashion companies will benefit from Amazon's distribution cloud. But if I were a Louis Vuitton or Hermes, I'd be very careful because Amazon typically owns the customer relationship. Right. That is very dangerous. You don't want to put uh, some distance between you and your customer, not in luxury. And if Amazon learns the tricks of the trade of these high-end luxury brands, there's nothing preventing them from going and doing something similar. They've done this in non-luxury. So yes, they'll get a lot of fashion companies uh, who are uh, not really high-end, but I'd be very surprised if LVMH and uh, its ilk say yes to an Amazon shopping platform. I know that these companies sell through Farfetch and Matches Fashion and Netapote, but those are high-end platforms. Uh, they've got a different positioning and they make sure that uh, when they sell these companies' products, they're still great custodians of their brand. When you're buying from Amazon, you're not you're buying from Amazon. The Amazon brand is stronger than any brand that it sells. And you don't want luxury to be overshadowed. So 
I'm curious to see which brands Amazon announces. I love Amazon. I think they've done a great job. But if I were a luxury brand, I'd be extremely leery. I would be shocked if LVMH and some of the other big houses work with Amazon on this. I, I, I agree with you. I think if they do, I think it really dilutes the, um, the brand. It's something that they've built the value for, uh, for for so long. I would, I would be shocked to, uh, to see that. I'll give you an example. I, and this is personal. I used to, for many years, I used to wear a cologne uh, from this um, Italian company. I shan't name it because they're a great company. And, you know, uh, they make very high-end uh, suits for men. And they're very sharp suits, but they also had a license to, uh, for fragrance. And it was a citrus fragrance. I used it for a couple of decades. My guy at Bergdorf's uh, suggested it to me in uh, 99 or 2000. And that's where I used to get my stock. Then Bergdorf made the decision not to sell that product. And that created a problem for me. So I had to go to another store that was not really high end and they sold it. And then one day I just did some research on Amazon and I found it on Amazon and I bought it. And that was the last time I wore that fragrance. Yeah. Because in my mind, it had lost its premium positioning. It's psychological, that's all it is. And I just doubted if it was really the authentic product. I asked my son, I said, take a look at the old bottle and the new bottle. He, he said, who knows? And I, and I look at that, and to me, that's another worry I have. If anything that you buy from Amazon, if it's not directly from the vendor store, if it's third party, is it really authentic? And we have that, plat that issue yet with a lot of third party platforms. And I don't blame them. I mean, they've got hundreds of millions of SKUs. How are they gonna police everything? They can't. And they're just relying on their vendors following the law. But there is a certain taint to uh, selling luxury in a non-luxury environment. You do want to make sure that you know, your product uh, you know, is in a physical environment that's considered upscale and in a digital environment that's considered upscale. Let's switch over to China. I think we briefly talked about China before. You know, spending on expensive clothing and handbags is recovering rapidly in China right now, but remains weak everywhere else. And by the middle of the decade, nearly half of all global luxury spending will come out of Chinese nationals, according to Bain, up from 35% versus last year. Now, there are signs that the luxury labels are going, at this point, everything I've read, going all out in this market. So do you think it's, a smart, it's smart for these brands to be so reliant on Chinese spending? What happened if there's a luxury bubble and it pops? The luxury bubble has already popped. And it's not popped of its own volition, it's popped because of the COVID virus. So this is what would happen if there was a real bubble. We are living in that scenario right now. Uh, they have to sell to China because that's the only market that's consuming. So I can't blame them. They've got to maximize their sales in China uh, as much as possible just to make sure that they keep the fires burning for the next year or two. They've got to do that. And if I were in their position, I'd do that. Now, whether China uh, has an undue influence on uh, luxury brand positioning and marketing, 
that's another story because if China becomes a really big market, um, then they'll exert their clout in other ways. And as we've seen, the Chinese are extremely sensitive to any appropriation of their culture or misappropriation of any slights. Their sense of humor is different from the Italians. So they're very quick to punish. They're very slow to forgive. So you have to be very careful if you're going out all China. At the same time, the Chinese people are very sophisticated. They've traveled a lot. Uh, they do a lot of research. They're very mobile savvy. They're very digital. Uh, they know what they want. They're also hungry for Western products. In as much as you see reports of domestic consumption, they still love their Louis Vuittons and Hermeses and Cartiers. They still do that. And what they love about these brands is their provenance. So the French have to be very French in the way they sell to China. So do the Italians and so do the British. They cannot dilute that. The Chinese are buying luxury products because of where they come from, because of what they stand for, not because of how they're pandering to the Chinese market. So you have to be very careful about that. So a Rolls Royce may have Chinese characteristics, but it has to be a British Rolls Royce. Same with thing with the Cartier watch. It has to be a very Swiss watch. Um, same thing with uh, fashion. So if the Chinese consider that a watered down version just for China, then what's so unique about it, right? So you have to balance. China is a big part of your market, yes. But those stats of Bain only hold true if the Chinese can travel overseas. 50% of Chinese luxury consumption happens on travel overseas. Right now, that travel overseas has stopped. Have they diverted all their spending to the local market? No, they haven't. I haven't seen the stats. So the jury is still out if uh, we'll see if China can account for one third of all sales. No, I'd still say that given the setback we've had this year and the, um, the slow return to overseas travel, I'd say that China will still account for one fifth or one fourth of all luxury consumption rather than one third. That's a little way off. And who knows how, who knows, you know, I mean, we don't know. Uh, China seems to have picked up a fight with pretty much every major country in the world. And fairly or unfairly, um, it's embroiled in these issues. And in the United States, um, if President Trump comes back to power, I expect further restrictions on uh, Chinese trade. Uh, if uh, Vice President Biden comes to power, I expect the same anti-China policy. Uh, I'm seeing a similar anti-China sentiment in uh, Germany and in France and uh, parts of the UK. Um, so, you know, while brands may have China strategies, they have to keep an eye on their governments because a lot of these governments, at the end of the day, they, they, they have their own agenda and they don't care if there's collateral damage. So we have to be very careful of how the Chinese Communist Party maintains its relations with the European Union, with Australia, uh, with the United States and with Canada. If there's an improvement, I see another boom in the marketplace. But if there's not, then obviously you will have a backlash from the Chinese people and they'll say, why are we spending our precious money in these markets that are not friendly to us. We'd only go where they want us. 
So be prepared for that scenario too. Yeah, instead of uh, revenge spending, it would be revenge against. It'd be avenge spending. Avenge spending, right. Have we coined a new term? <laughs> I think we did. I think we did. Avenge spending. Let's, uh, we'll remember that. Um, so it's that time of year again. It's New York Fashion Week, but it's going to look very, very different this year, obviously. You know, more green screens and virtual technology. And I think you're allowed to hold outdoor events with a cap of 50 people. Indoor events can, I think they can occur, but also 50% capacity. So while many of New York Fashion Week's typically featured designers have dropped out, some brands thought it's important to forge ahead, even in these uncertain times. Uh, we'll be seeing new digital formats and hybrid models to introduce collections. So is this the end or the reimagining of Fashion Week as we know it? And do you think fashion brands of tomorrow will instead use Fashion Week shows to communicate uh, and sell their, to their customers directly through digital channels? I think fashion weeks will be back. Um, we're just going through a phase and we just have to be careful. We're not infecting each other. And that's the reason why we don't have fashion weeks because of the virus and we don't have a vaccine. It's very important to have a physical presence. Uh, how else will you touch the fabric? If you're a buyer, you want to know what the fabric feels like, right? You need uh, uh, to have one-on-one -on -one appointments with the designer. So you just can't do that digitally. You need to see that in person. And besides, how do young designers get discovered? I mean, there's a scrum online, at least in person, they can meet people, they can get to talk to reporters and media. So it's very vital that fashion weeks are kept alive physically. Now we have to make sure that you don't have a complete zoo like you, know, you had a few years ago. And I know a lot of brands have walked out of fashion weeks. I mean, they've got their own agenda. They want to cut costs and they may not find it useful. But you're always going to see a physical fashion week and uh, it might be with all the physical constraints of the day. But at the end of the day, you need to make eye contact, you need to shake hands, you need to say hello, you need to have a coffee because that's how you build relationships. Uh, doing digitally, it's just basically you're seeing it, but you're not feeling it, you're not immersed in it. And by the way, digital is going to be a permanent component of the physical element. You already saw that before the pandemic. Right. Um, you, all these fashion weeks uh, and fashion shows were streamed live. So that's already part of the uh, landscape right now. I wouldn't see that changing, but to entirely rely on only digital selling, nope. I don't think that would be beneficial to fashion brands in terms of awareness, in terms of discovery, in terms of relationship building. You do need physical. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how uh, New York Fashion Week goes this week and what comes out of it and what the learnings are. Um, so Lassa, let's, I wanna talk about Luxury Daily's future of luxury e-conference that's coming up on September 23rd and 24th. That's really excited. That's every year you do this. I think you've been doing this for what, seven years? Yeah, we call yeah. it First Look. That's what we call it in January. So we just rebranded for rebranded it for this September, but it's we've been doing First Look since January of 2013. So what is the focus of this year's event? I took a look at the lineup. It's It just blew me away, um, especially, you know, it, it being virtually, I, I it's incredible. I'll, I'll, I'll let you tell the listeners, but you know, what is the focus this year? Um, what are the people gonna talk about? 
who are some of the speakers, if you want to drop some names. So the focus of this event is, as it says, it's the future. What's the future of luxury? And we've entered a phase where, you know, I don't want to be dramatic, but you know, what was old may not hold true for the immediate future. Um, you're going to adjust, you're going to adapt. Um, and I believe that this is really the start of luxury 2.0. That's what it is. What does that mean? That means it's um, a newer, better, more cohesive, more directed luxury. This pandemic has basically made us very clear in terms of our priorities and it's sharpened the tools that we had. If, uh, if, if we were barely okay with CRM, this has highlighted the need for a stronger CRM strategy, right? So I see luxury marketers going through three phases with what we're going through right now is evolution, revolution, and innovation. So that's what we want to stress with the Future of Luxury Conference. We've got 42 speakers from major retailers and brands around the world. We've got Harrods, um, we've got Knight Frank in real estate, Harrods in retail. You've got um, magazines such as Travel and Leisure, uh, Chanel, Apple, Kering's, Pomelato. You've got watches of Switzerland, Wempe, and then the various associations such as Walpole, Camite Colbert, Altagama, eBay, McCann, Erickson, Moet Hennessy. So, I mean, right. you've got this whole lineup. I hope, uh, you know, I hope the listeners, you know, take this opportunity because it's very rare to get 42 people from seven countries across different time zones to come together and share their thoughts on where they see their sector moving and what innovation are they seeing and where they see their company moving and the innovation they're spearheading. I've got a challenge of my life because I just hope to God the connection doesn't drop. So <laughs> me, that is my biggest fear. Talk about adapting to a new environment. When I have everybody in one room, I know the microphones will work and I know the PowerPoints will work. But here I'm depending on the Wi-Fi connection of 42 people working mostly from their homes and hoping to God that they've downloaded the software before they sign on, <laughs> making sure they take this as seriously as they take a physical conference. So you talk about adapting, we're doing that, but they're giving their time. These are very senior executives yeah. who are giving their time to share ideas and strategy with luxury, fellow luxury marketers. How can listeners find out more? Just go to Luxury Daily. Uh, we are promoting it quite regularly. It's a yellow banner and you will see that in our newsletters every day. You'll see it on our website. Um, I'm promoting it and making sure that people have the opportunity to register. Um, you know, we've kept the uh, registration fee low just so that we get uh, maximum participation. But I'd also want these folks to you know, attend and then feel free to reach out to these smart executives and talk to them because you're not going to see another physical luxury conference uh, for the next six to eight months. Nowhere. They're all going to be digital and most of them are pay for play. 
Not a single session that we are hosting is pay for play. It's pure editorial. So I just hope that, you know, uh, folks take advantage of this and basically get an idea. If you sit through this conference, it's two days. You may not want to sit through every session. It's going to be archived and recorded, but you'll have a fair idea of what's happening in fashion and leather goods, wines and spirits, automotive, uh, travel and hospitality, um, in watches and jewelry, in real estate, uh, in technology, in research, uh, wealth management. It just spans every single sector of luxury. And I want to make sure that folks have the opportunity to absorb as much information and knowledge and insights as possible because you know, our reality could change within weeks of getting the vaccine or it could stay the same for the next six to eight months. But we know what these guys are doing. And if you're looking to benchmark yourself against some of your peers, this is the opportunity. Yeah, it's the premier luxury event of the year. There's no question about it. And I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to attend. Um, Mickey, thank you so much uh, for coming back on for this special episode. I was getting lots of fan mail um, asking about you to come back on. So, uh, so thank you for joining me and sharing some of, uh, some of your wisdom um, and thoughts over the, uh, that you've gathered over the last few months and looking ahead. No, thank you very much. I'm very glad. Uh, it's normally, I'm the one asking questions, so it's good to be on the other side. I hope the listeners will take away, uh, you know, the right message from this. That is, you know, uh, times are tough. You've got to stay tough. Make sure you, uh, you know, you're uh, sensible in your uh, strategy but also be realistic and just be optimistic. At the end of the day, it's always mind over matter when you have crises like this. It really is. You've got to will yourself to do better. Thank you very much, Scott. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.